Weekly Signals, every Tuesday morning from 8 to 9 a.m. Join me, Mike Casper, and Nathan Callahan for the best in reality-based radio. That's Weekly Signals. Check out the website at weeklysignals.com. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. Good evening. You're listening to KUCI at 88.9 FM in Irvine and online at KUCI.org. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's a local attorney and certified information privacy professional. She's the author of several books, including Safeguard Your Identity and From Victim to Victor, a step-by-step guide for ending the nightmare of identity theft. She sits as an advisor to the State of California Office of Privacy Protection, and she's a sheriff reserve here in Orange County. She's testified many times in Congress and the California legislature on privacy and identity theft issues, and you may have seen her on TV on Dateline, 48 Hours, NBC, ABC, CNN, O'Reilly, Geraldo, Montel, a lot of other shows. And uh, she did her own 90-minute PBS special last year called Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. To learn more about this radio show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash privacy piracy. Good evening, Mari. Good evening. We are so pleased to be able to sit right here on the UCI campus in the brand new law school in the office of the new founding dean, Erwin Shimerinsky, who is sitting here with us. So great. We're, we've been trying to get him for over a year, and we are so thrilled that he is here and excited about it. You know, Lloyd, remember we saw him recently speak at the ADL conference, and he was wonderful. We were so excited about that. And just recently, the LA Times had an editorial about him that was so positive that I wanted to read a portion of it for those people who didn't have a chance to read it. And it says here, we applauded when UC Irvine, after an initial misstep, named Erwin Chemerinsky as the dean of its new law school. Now he is working to build the staff and faculty for that institution. And our early enthusiasm is giving way to full-throated jubilation. And then it goes on to say, Chemerinsky is sometimes categorized under the simplistic shorthand of liberal constitutional scholar. But that does not do justice to this Los Angeles treasure. But now he is an Orange County UCI treasure. And let me tell you a little bit about his background. If you haven't read about him, which I'm sure you have, I'm going to just tell a little background while he sits here. We're going to get to him really soon. Erwin Chemerinsky, our new founding dean of the University of California, Irvine School of Law, is a nationally renowned professor of constitutional law and federal civil procedure. He just came from Duke University. By the way, my son graduated from there with honors. And he just moved here last last month in July. Dean Chemerinsky will be responsible for the school's academic and administrative leadership, including developing and implementing a scholarly and educational vision that will take the school from startup to top-tier status. There is no question in my mind. He's been a law professor 
at Duke University. Previously, before 2004, he was professor of public law, legal ethics, and political science at the University of Southern California for 21 years at that law school. So he is really a California man here. And he was director of the university's Center for Communications Law and Policy from 2000 to 2004. And he also served as a professor at DePaul College of Law from 1980 to 1983. And he practiced as a trial lawyer with the U.S. Department of Justice, and he was also a private attorney before then. And I don't know if he knows this, but I'm a Chicago girl, just like he's a Chicago boy, actually, Oak Park. So we're, we're neighbors. He's the author of many books, of which I just finished reading this past week, Enhancing Government, Federalism for the 21st Century, and I've got an autographed copy right here in front of me. I'm so excited. I enjoyed it. It, As a professor myself, I was thrilled to see that he helped me understand what I was going to learn, told me what I was going to learn, and then made me understand a conclusion and summary of what I learned. So he is clearly the best professor around for law school, that's for sure. He has gotten so many awards. I mean, I could go on here for an hour and giving his accolades, but he's the author of several books, over a 100 articles, many awards, and we are just so thrilled. And if you want to learn more about him, you can go to www.law.uci.edu and you can see a whole bunch more Thank you so much, Dean. We're so thrilled to be with you here. I'm thrilled to be with you. Thank you so much for all of the kind words. Just delighted to get the chance to talk with you. Well, this is great because our radio show is right here on the campus. So all of those people who are on the campus who are thinking of law school are going to get a a whole glimpse of what's coming. So this is a thrill for all of us to be able to be here with you. Thank you so much. So let's get started here. You've been a law professor for many, many years now. How does this new position as founding dean of UCI, how does it fulfill your dreams? I'm incredibly excited. We have the chance to create a dream law school. As I've recruited administrators and faculty over the last year to join me, what I've said, this is our chance to create the ideal law school for the 21st century. And for me, it's a wonderful opportunity. I get to be part of shaping an institution that will be here long beyond my career, long beyond my life. Yeah. And, you know, when you've taught for so many years, you know what works and you know what doesn't work. So this is the chance for, like, all those years that you probably complained to your wife and said, gee, why don't they do this? Now you can do it. You're right. I have been a law professor for 28 years now, which is a long time. I do have strong views about what legal education should be about. I think law schools can do a much better job of preparing law students for the practice of law. My wife is also a law professor. I know that. She was a chaired professor at Duke Law School, a professor at the University of Southern California before that. And I think the best thing that UCI got by hiring me as dean is getting (laughs) her on the faculty. (laughs) You get two for one, and then she can tell you, she can complain to you as well, and then you can do something. Before you guys could only complain, but you couldn't really have the ultimate say, and now you can. And she can complain about the dean to everyone behind my back. (laughs) That's right. That's right. So what is this vision that this is going to be the law school for the 21st century? How is it going to be different from when I went to law school almost 30 years ago? I think, as I said a moment ago, that we can do a better job than any other law school in the country in preparing law students for the practice of law. I think something very bad happened in legal education at the turn of the 20th century. Preparing students for the practice of law became the focus of the bottom tier of law schools, 
the prestigious law schools largely disavowed that. I don't know what your experience was, but I sure didn't graduate law school prepared to go practice law. No way. Nor do I believe the schools that I've taught at, the terrific institutions, are particularly good at that. So as an example, I want to make sure that every law student has a clinical experience in law school where the law student has to actually represent clients. I want to reorient what, reorient what was a traditionally a first-year course in legal writing into a course in lawyering skills. I'll give one example. I want to make sure that our students are taught how to do fact investigation. I've hired a man who's a law school graduate but also spent 30 years at the Los Angeles Times award-winning to come teach fact investigation, among other things. I want to teach our students how to do contract drafting, something that law students don't learn. I want to make sure they get negotiation exercises and courses. And so all of these things that go into being a lawyer so our students prepare when they graduate to practice at the top levels at the cutting edge of the profession. At the same time, I want us to be very interdisciplinary. I think in order to be a successful lawyer at the top levels, you often need to know some other disciplines. If you want to do business or tax law, you need to know some economics. If you're going to do criminal law, you need to know some psychology. And so I want to make sure that we have this is a part of the law school. We're so well suited here at UCI to do that because there are a large number of spectacular faculty in other departments who do law-related work. Right, right. I especially like to hear about this, that you're going to do negotiation, and we should talk about mediation, too, because we know that 80% of our conflicts and our disputes and our lawsuits settle. But a lot of attorneys only know how to argue. I remember when I was in law school, I could get up and argue. I could do moot court. I could do all those things. But I didn't have negotiation, and and I think mediation and negotiation and ADR is going to be so important since that's what we do anyway. I totally agree. One of the founding faculty is a woman named Carrie Menkel Meadow. Carrie's been at Georgetown the last 10 years as a tenured professor and was for 15 years before that at UCLA. And she is one of the most renowned experts in the country when it comes to alternative dispute resolution, which are things like negotiation, mediation, mediation, arbitration. Right, right. Well, that's terrific because I think that is one thing that, that doesn't get enough uh, emphasis. Sometimes that when I taught at a, a law school here in the county, it was, it was not a required subject. It was just, okay, well, you can take that. That will be a fun thing to take, but it, it really should be required. So how will law – well, we just talked about that. How are they going to be better really equipped in the field of law now with technology? I mean, law is changing so quickly. We don't even have enough laws to, to catch up with what's happening in technology and the Internet. Well, I think you've asked me a number of different things. You know, in terms of how are they going to be better equipped to practice law, think of it this way. Imagine if medical students graduated medical school never having seen a patient. Or Scary. dental students who graduated <laughs> dental school, never having treated a patient. Right. Most law students never have a client. So the key is they need to have clients. They need to have responsibility. But I'd like to have them have clinical responsibilities and experiences every year of the three years of law school. Right. Now, in terms of technology, technology is enormously important. Lawyers have to use technology in ways that wasn't available before. E-filing. When I went to law yeah. school, right, right now, now everything's <laughs> e-filing, which I must confess, I just tell my assistant how to learn how to e-file. <laughs> right. And for those who are listening, what that means is instead of filing the paper submitted to the court, you're expected to do it online. Right. But much legal research is now done online. Also, right. lawyers serve clients who are dealing with all of these technology issues. Right. And so we need to prepare our students in every way for lo- the technology that's emerging, for the legal issues related to technology. 
Another one of our founding faculty is Dan Burke from the University of Minnesota. Dan is one of the leading experts in the country in law and technology intellectual property. He was an engineer before going to law school and specialized particularly in patent law, but in all of the areas of intellectual property and law and technology. And he's going to help us design the best possible program dealing with law and technology, which is his passion in intellectual property. Right, and that's terrific. And how about privacy? Now privacy invades everything that we do, you know, and there's there's more and more lawsuits about privacy and data breaches, et cetera. So is that going to be an, an issue that you're going to address? Oh, of course. Every law school has to because it comes up in so many different areas of law. Privacy is in part dealt with through constitutional law issues. Right. Privacy comes up that. in the employment law context because whether employers can read employees' emails or right. watch them on cameras when they use the restroom, right. I mean, all of those are issues that are being litigated in court. Right. It comes up in tort law, the law that governs when people can sue each other for injuries, Damn, invasion yeah, of privacy. So, right. right. So privacy healthcare comes privacy, up. talk about healthcare, that's a big healthcare one. Healthcare law, absolutely. So my point is, that privacy comes up in all of these different areas. And I think in every law school is an important part of the curriculum. Right. So I just finished reading your new book, which I thought was terrific. I got it right here. Enhancing Government, Federalism for the 21st Century. So what prompted you to write this book? It's so nice to know I have sold one copy (laughs) of the book. Uh, I think when historians look back at the Rehnquist Court, they will say that its greatest changes in constitutional law with regard to federalism. The Supreme Court struck down important laws, such as one that prohibited guns near schools, one that said that women who were victims of domestic violence could sue federal court, one that required that states clean up nuclear wastes, one that expanded religious freedom. And the court did so in the name of federalism. And I'm very troubled by limiting the ability of the government to do things like prohibit guns in your schools, protect women from domestic violence and acts of violence, to require the clean of nuclear waste. And so what I wanted to do was to articulate a different vision for federalism. It's a book that took me a long time to write. The idea of the book actually came to me about 20 years ago. I started writing it about 10 years ago. And finally, I had a sabbatical two years ago (laughs) where I sat down and put the words on paper and I was thrilled when Stanford University Press, which is a terrific university press, decided to publish it. And it came out just last um, May of this year. I know, and I just got it. And I, I want to read something by uh, Jason Mazone. Is that how you pronounce his name? I yeah, think from so. Brooklyn Law School. And he said The framers gave us federalism at the end of the 18th century. Enhancing government is federalism's blueprint for the 21st century. So that's what he thinks about your book. He says, Chemerinsky delivers a death blow to the modern view that federalism serves to limit government action and shows instead how federalism allows government to solve problems and to enhance individual liberties. Powerful, powerfully argued, erudite, and practical this magnificent book is essential reading for every citizen. So that was really nice. That was great. I did not pay him for that <laughs> quote. Did I didn't too. pay the LA Times <laughs> for the editorial, but I couldn't have done better if I had paid them. I know, I it's know. It's incredibly generous. When I read that, I said I have praise. to read this book. But um, it's a subject I care deeply about. It's not a topic that would initially 
seem to be that important. After all, we're talking about the structure of government here. Right. And yet I do think whether government can deal with the social problems that society faces really depends on how these powers are defined. And in federalism, why don't you define that? And I think it probably has had an evolution that, that you may not agree with here in terms of what does federalism really mean? What's unique about the American system of government is that we have two levels of government that have the ability to regulate people and their behavior. We have the federal government and we have state governments. There's also local governments, of course, though those are really creatures of state governments. Mm -hmm. The Constitution had states before it was ever adopted. And then federalism is about how should power be allocated when it comes to the federal government as opposed to the state governments. Should the federal government be limited in what it can do to preserve more in the way of governance to the states? Right. Now, you explained that the uh, Rehnquist Court and the present Supreme Court seems to be incongruent in their approach to preemption of state statutes. I thought that was really interesting. They seem to be interested in focusing on the political aspects rather than precedent or at least consistency in the system. And why don't you give it, you gave some great examples of that. I loved it because, boy, that was just right on. And let me try to make it much less abstract. There's a basic principle of law that says if federal law and state law conflict, federal law wins because the federal government is supreme, and the state law is then preempted, precluded. Now, you can define when there's a conflict narrowly, which would leave more choices to state and local governments, or you can define preemption broadly, which would mean more state and local laws are struck down. One might think that a conservative court that's committed to states' rights would want to limit when there's preemption. Right. One way to empower state and local governments is by limiting when there's preemption. And you know, all the time you hear in politics about that, that they wanted to get Supreme Court justices that would not, you know, overrule the state so much. Right? And yet, what's interesting is, over the last 10 years, the Rehnquist Court and now the Roberts Court have consistently found federal law to preempt state law. Yes. Once more, let me make this less abstract by examples, and I'll give an example from just this year that's not in the book because it came down after the book was already in press. Okay, perfect. There's a case before the Supreme Court on the issue of if the FDA approves a medical device, then does that preempt lawsuits against the manufacturer? Um. What if the medical device turns out to be dangerous? Can you still sue the manufacturer? The particular case involved a balloon catheter used in angioplasty, Mm -hmm. heart surgery. There's a provision in federal law that says that if the FDA approves the medical device, states can't regulate it. Hmm. But could there be a lawsuit against the the manufacturer under state law? The Supreme Court said no. Mm -hmm. The Supreme Court found preemption. Justice Scalia wrote for the court and said, well, liability changes behavior just as regulation does, and Congress meant to stop that. Just as Ginsburg in dissent said, but Congress didn't preempt liability. It just preempted regulation. I'll give you another example. California adopted a law that said that insurance companies doing business in California that sold insurance policies during the Holocaust had to disclose them. Now, it didn't impose anything other than a disclosure requirement. The reason for this is many insurance companies that had policies from the Holocaust era that they never paid are refusing to disclose it. They're, in the words of the California legislature, stonewalling. Right. And so California said, we're only regulating businesses 
that are actually here in California, doing business in California. But if there's an insurance company doing business here, and it had policies in the Holocaust here, it has to disclose it. Five to four, the Supreme Court said the California law was preempted, even though there was no federal law in point. Right, and there was no actual uh, dictate in the law that says it's preempted, That's correct? correct? Right. So what I kept seeing in your, in your book was if it says that it's preempted, if Congress says it's preempted, then it's preempted, or if there's a conflict. But otherwise, there really shouldn't be preemption. Now, give some examples of how they did, they did preempt. They did not preempt. I'm sorry. Well, what you've said is exactly right in terms of my theory. I want to limit when there's federal preemption to be able to do a better job of empowering states to deal with social problems. And, you, you know, especially because you're living here now that you're back in your home state here, right. your new home state, um, you know, we have, this is a very progressive state. And we constantly find that there's preemption. And it doesn't give us the opportunity to protect our own consumers in this state. Whether states can do things like deal with problems of global warming or problems with regard to health care benefits often come down to preemption. I'll give you another give a good, example. Good example of, yeah, give an give example, example of that, how the consumers lose in this. Let me give you an example of that. There's a case that you read about in my book. A woman bought a Honda. This was before there were airbags. And she was seriously injured in an accident. And she sued Honda saying, you know, if you'd put in an airbag, I wouldn't have been injured in this way. And the technology was available. Right. Congress had passed a law, the Motor Vehicle Safety Act, that said, that, that automobile companies could provide safety in a number of different ways. One option, though not required at that time, was airbags. Congress then said in the law, nothing in this statute is meant to preempt any other law or form of liability. Right. Could so Congress be was clearer very clear. Right. In there saying no preemption. Right, right. Nonetheless, the Supreme Court found that there was preemption and that therefore this injured woman wasn't able to gain any recovery. Now, I want to be clear for your listeners. I believe that there are instances where there are too many lawsuits. I'm not saying that lawsuits are inherently a good right. thing. Obviously, they're not. Right. I do believe, though, that we need to make sure that people who are seriously injured can get their day in court and have a fair shot, fair shot at recovery. Exactly, exactly. One of the issues that I found particularly important in your book, Enhancing Government, is that you strongly believe that enhancing federalism will empower, actually will empower states' rights and inhibit preemption. So how does it tell us about how it will enhance state rights? Well, it's just what I was saying. If you limit the situations when state and local regulation is preempted, state and local governments have more ability to deal with social problems. We've already mentioned some. State and local governments being able to create liability to make medical devices safer, or state and local governments being able to regulate insurance companies, or state and local governments creating liability with regard to cars. I'll give another example. Massachusetts adopted a law that said it didn't want cigarette advertising or advertising of other tobacco products within a thousand feet of a school or a playground. And if there was a place that was selling cigarettes, it would be a certain number of feet over the ground. Now, we can talk about whether that violates the First Amendment, but the question is, is that preempted by federal law? There's a federal law that says that cigarette packages and advertisements have to have a warning label. Right, right. And that says that there can't be state regulation of the content of the warning label that's inconsistent with the federal one. 
So she's easy talking to about the warning why. label. That's though. right. It's easy to understand why, of course, because we wouldn't want tobacco companies to have to have different warning labels for each different state. Right. But it's all it's about is the warning label. It doesn't have anything to do with regulating the placement of ads. But the Supreme Court, five to four, with the five most conservative justices in the majority, found that there was preemption just based on this law. Now, you may agree or disagree with this particular Massachusetts law, but it's clear that Massachusetts had a lot less ability to regulate as a result of being preempted. I think if you limit preemption, you empower state and local governments. Right. So kind of explain how you you saw that the Rehnquist Court as well as the Roberts Court is Really inconsistent. I know when I went back, when I was in law school and took constitutional law, I remember thinking to myself as I'm reading these cases, even 30 years ago, that there is inconsistency that they that they really decide a case on how they want it to come out rather than re- I mean they they bend and they twist and they change things and and that seems to be what's happening at least with regard to this federal versus state rights. Constitutional questions that get to the Supreme Court are inevitably hard ones and ones that reasonable people can disagree about. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, it wouldn't get all the way to the Supreme Court. That's true. That's true. (laughs) There aren't clear answers hardly ever when it comes to constitutional issues, and that includes preemption. Because you can't get Thomas Jefferson and all the guys together to tell us what they were thinking, right? And even if you could, (laughs) why believe that they would disagree? You know. (laughs) I had an experience 10 years ago where I was elected by the voters of Los Angeles to serve on a commission to rewrite the city charter. And in California, a charter is much like the Constitution. It creates the institutions of city government. It allocates power among the branches. It even can provide more protection of individual liberties than the state or federal constitutions. Mm -hmm. And there were 15 of us on my commission. There was another 21-person commission trying to do the same thing. And we spent two years. It was an incredibly intense process. And then we proposed a new charter, and the voters adopted it in June 1999. As soon as it was passed, immediately litigation developed over some of its provisions. Inevitably, the questions that came up in litigation were ones that none of us had ever thought about. Right. And when we did think about it, we disagreed about what we meant. So I find Perceptions the city attorney, are different, right. right? I find the city attorney's office and the mayor's office still call me off and say, what did you mean by this provision? Yeah, of course, yeah. I can only speak for myself. If right. I say what they like, they say, would you write a declaration saying that's what your commission <laughs> intended? And if they disagree, they just keep calling other commissioners until they find one that says, oh, yeah, that's what we meant. <laughs> when you're dealing with a multi-member body, there's not yeah. a single intent out right. there to be found. Right. And especially when you're doing something with the Constitution, it was ratified in 1787. The Bill of right. Rights was ratified in 1791. Right. So many people were involved in the Philadelphia Convention to draft it, the state ratifying conventions. Yeah. Why well, believe there's really such a thing as a original intent right. or framers' desire for the Constitution? They all had their own perceptions. Of course, yeah, that's exactly. right. Exactly, yeah. But precedent. I mean, doesn't precedent mean precedent <laughs> and consistency? I can answer your question literally. Is precedent means precedent. <laughs> but that doesn't really tell us how much weight precedent should be given. Mm. There was a huge body of scholarship by law professors about what's the appropriate role of precedent in the legal system. And I can summarize it all in a sentence or two. Precedent should be followed, except when it should be overruled. (laughs) And yet that's not being flippant. I mean, people who are listening may think I'm being flippant. I'm not at all. Everyone thinks that precedent is important for stability in the legal system. On the other hand, everyone also believes there are times when precedent has to be overruled. Plessy versus Ferguson in 1896 said that separate but equal was constitutional under equal protection. Right. Thankfully, by 1954, 
albeit much too late, the Supreme Court overruled Plessy versus Ferguson in Brown versus Board of Education. Everyone would agree that was an essential overruling of precedent, right, right. even at that point, a 58-year-old precedent. So that's why I say, yes, precedent is important, but there are instances where precedent has to be overruled, too. Right, right. You're, you're a U.S. constitutional guru. I'm going to call you a guru. You're my guru here. A true scholar of the Constitution. Thank you. So let's talk about privacy, which is close to my heart, okay? Because I know you know this because it's all over the Constitution, even though there's no word that basically says privacy, except in the California Constitution. Maybe that's why we're so privacy conscious here. Um, help my un- my audience understand the various clauses and amendments that really address the issue of privacy. Um, should we go one by one? Sure. Take the First Amendment. Okay. The Supreme Court has interpreted the First Amendment to protect privacy with regard to what we read, what we watch. In 1969, in a case called Stanley versus Georgia, the Supreme Court said people have the right to have even obscene material in their home. Child pornography is different. You don't have a right to have child pornography in your home. But as to obscenity, no one can be convicted and put in prison for having even material regarded as obscene. The Supreme Court said privacy under the First Amendment safeguards the right to view what you want, read what you choose in your own bedroom. Right. The Third Amendment. This is one that, unless your listeners are really familiar with the Constitution, they probably don't remember. The (laughs) Third Amendment says that the government can't force people to house soldiers. That's because the King of England had forced people in the colonies to literally house soldiers. This is about privacy, the privacy of the home. I think the Fourth Amendment is an enormously important provision with Mm -hmm. regard to privacy. It says that there can't be unreasonable searches and seizures, that generally any search or arrest has to be based on probable cause with a warrant issued by a neutral judge. This is about the privacy of our homes, our persons, even our thoughts. Because this, for example, has been interpreted to say the government can't engage in wiretapping or electronic eavesdropping without a warrant based on probable cause. The Fifth Amendment and the Fourteenth Amendment say that no person can be deprived of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. The Supreme Court, since early in the 20th century, has said that part of our liberty is the right to privacy. So in 1965, the Supreme Court said, a state law that prohibited the use of contraceptives in the instance between married couples violated the right to privacy. The court later said, seven years later in 1972, that the right to privacy means anything. is the right to choose whether to bear or beget a child. In 1973, the Supreme Court, again, interpreting the Liberty Due Process Clause, said that women have the right to choose whether to terminate their pregnancies. In 2003, the Supreme Court said the right to privacy, again under the Liberty Due Process Clause, means that the state can't prohibit private, consensual, adult homosexual activity. What about gay marriage? Now, we've seen what's happened in, the, in our California state. What, what are your thoughts, and what do you think is going to happen with this? The United States Supreme Court has not dealt with gay marriage. But in 1967, in a case quite appropriately, ironically titled Loving versus Virginia, <laughs> the Supreme Court held that the right to marry is a fundamental right. The court in subsequent cases has reaffirmed that the right to marry is a fundamental right. Under California, as you mentioned, privacy is a fundamental right. Also, discrimination against gays and lesbians is deemed suspect under the California Constitution. Now, what people don't realize is the decision of the California Supreme Court in May 
concerning marriage equality was under the California Constitution. Right. It was not under the United States Constitution. Right. The California Supreme Court, in an opinion by Chief Justice Ron George, said— And he's the, a pretty conservative guy. He is. I mean, he was appointed by a Republican governor. Right, right. And indeed, six of the seven justices on the California Supreme Court were appointed by Republican governors. Three of the four in the majority of that decision, Chief Justice George, Justice Kennard, Justice Werdegar, were appointed by Republican governors. But Chief Justice George said it violates the fundamental right to marry, violates the right to equal protection under the California Constitution to prohibit marriage equality, to outlaw same-sex marriage. In 1947, California, the California Supreme Court struck down a California law that prohibited interracial marriage. Right. And it led the way, I think, to the Supreme Court doing so a number of years later. I think the, here the California Supreme Court is likely also something that's going to be followed throughout the country. I will make the prediction here, within my lifetime, and I'm 55 years old, same-sex marriage, marriage equality will exist in all or virtually all the states of the country. Already it's allowed in Canada. It's allowed in almost all Western Massachusetts? states. Massachusetts has had it now for a number of years. Right and now, now, I just read to, in a recently in the paper that now they changed, I guess if they, just, they, they interpreted the law or they changed the law just, just recently to say that if you move, if you come in from another estate, you can get married in Massachusetts and it'll be a legal marriage, which they didn't have that before under Romney. Well, in fact, it wasn't under Romney. That's an old Massachusetts law oh. that was meant to prohibit interracial marriages. Oh, okay. And as the governor of Massachusetts, Deval Patrick, pointed out, that wasn't a law that had anything to do with same-sex right, marriage. Right, 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 but they used it that they way. They used it with regard right. to interracial marriage. Right. And now the Massachusetts legislature has repealed it. At yeah. this moment, as we speak, almost one one-eighth of the nation's population live in states where same-sex marriage is allowed. I think that's going to soon be followed throughout the country. There is an initiative on the ballot Yeah, what's in that going to mean? Yeah. Proposition 8 would right. overturn the California Supreme Court decision by amending the California Constitution to write that marriage is only between a man yeah. and a woman. I'm hopeful that that's going to be defeated because I believe that gays and lesbians have the same right to express love and commitment through marriage, the same right to get the benefits that the law provides those who are married, right. the same right to be disappointed by marriage as the rest <laughs> right. of society. Right. And I also think it's a very pro-family decision. Well, we already have in this state, and no one has you know, gotten that change, we've got the domestic partnership law, which gives them every single right except the right to file jointly for in state and federal law. I mean, so it's basically there. It's just that they that's a second-class name as they see it. And keep in mind that gays and lesbians are going to have children, whether marriage is allowed exactly. or not. Gay men through adoption or right. through surrogacy, lesbians through artificial insemination or by adoption. Um, so the question is, are the children in those of those couples, gay and lesbian couples, better off with their parents married or unmarried. Right. If you believe, as I do, as our society long has, that marriage enhances stability and is good for children, then gay marriage is really something that's very pro-family. Well, if public policy says that, that children should have parents, then public policy, if you talk about public policy, then that's good for, for kids, like you right. said. So what are we looking at? What is the best interest of the children? That's right. Yeah. Okay, so I wanted to ask you... Um, it seems as though that the idea of the right to privacy kind of originated when um, 
When Louis Brandeis, before he became a Supreme Court justice, and another young lawyer, Samuel Warren, first published their article in the Harvard Law Review called The Right to Privacy, and they argued that there was a right to be left alone. So tell us, how did they interpret that? How did they get that out of the Constitution? This article was written in 1890, right? and it was less about the Constitution and more about when can people sue other people. Uh-huh. And what Warren and Brandeis said at the beginning of their article, and it's actually worth people reading online because it seems so it prescient of yeah. what we're doing now. They said that the press is overstepping bounds <laughs> at every opportunity. So the press is much more concerned with scandal and celebrity than news. You might say the same thing in 2008, exactly. Yeah, yeah, really. And they believe that there should be the ability to sue the press and others for invasion of privacy. And so they had in mind such things as, if the press were to say things about me that put me in a false light, I should be able to sue for that. If the press used my name or likeness to sell a product without my permission, I should be able to sue over that. If the press reports very personal things about me, it would be offensive to the reasonable person to say, I should be able to sue. That's what they're Well, you would have had a about. lot of fun, wouldn't you? <laughs> well, everything they proposed is now the law. I know, I know. And so, but there was no right to privacy. And all the examples I gave, none of those were areas where there could be suits back in 1890. But Warren and Brandeis made a huge difference by proposing this concept of the right to privacy. So how has the right to privacy really evolved as you, as you look at it? Because we... we we look at so many different areas of the law and information privacy. It's just changing dramatically. I think it's important to realize that privacy is an umbrella that's used to describe a number of very distinct concepts. You and I, in just the last few minutes, have been talking about privacy, but we've really been talking about three different aspects of privacy. And I think it's important to keep them separate. And unfortunately, I think the law has made a mistake, and I've written about this, by not having separate labels for them. One is about government intrusion, or even intrusion by others. Um, Part of our right to privacy is being protected from certain kinds of intrusion. The Fourth Amendment that we talk about says the government can come into our home through police only if there's a search warrant. I worked on a law that was adopted by the California legislature a number of years ago that limits what paparazzi can do. It says there can be an electronic trespass. If the paparazzi get photographs or sound through the use of electronic equipment, but they otherwise only be able to get through a physical trespass. That's an electronic trespass. In other words, if the paparazzi use a telephoto lens or a parabolic mic to get photos or sound that otherwise they could only get if they'd actually physically trespass, that should be actionable as well. Mm-hmm. And the California legislature adopted that law. So that's one kind of privacy, freedom from intrusion. A second kind of privacy is what you mentioned a moment ago, informational privacy. We're concerned about our medical records, our financial records, our student records, We're going to stay adequately private in worlds of databases. A third kind of privacy is privacy is autonomy, the ability to make certain basic choices for our lives. When the Supreme Court said there's a fundamental right to purchase and use contraceptives, or a right to abortion, or a right to engage in same-sex sexual activity, that's really about privacy as autonomy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You're a champion of civil rights and freedom. We all know that. And um, it seems that we, you know, from my perspective, and you probably, I think you agree with this, is that we really can't have freedom without privacy. Help us understand your perspective of the overreaches of executive power and how that relates to the Fourth Amendment. 
the framers of the Constitution were brilliant. And they had a very simple but elegant idea. For anything that government does, there should usually be two branches of government involved. They distrusted allowing the president, the executive, or for that matter, Congress, to act on its own. Or so the think judiciary, about this. right? Or the judiciary. So think about it, and then I can get to your direct question. Okay. In order to adopt the law, everyone knows it generally takes Congress and the president to be involved. In order to have a treaty, the president negotiates, the Senate has to ratify. In order to appoint judges or justices, the president nominates, the Senate has to confirm the nomination. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, when it comes to putting somebody in prison, the president has to prosecute, but the court has to convict. The framers had the same view with regard to intrusion. They wanted to make sure, generally, absent emergency circumstances, that before the police searched somebody, their person, their home, a neutral judge approved that. Well, things changed during this administration. The Bush administration claimed the authority to engage in massive, warrantless electronic eavesdropping, mm -hmm. being able to listen in people's phone conversation with those in other countries or email communication without having to get a warrant. Now, I'm not saying there should be absolute protection from government scrutiny. I'm just saying that it shouldn't be for the president alone to decide when to engage in such electronic eavesdropping. And that leads us to the issue of the FISA court, right? Uh, what are your thoughts with regard to the importance of the FISA court and what's been happening recently with the issues of the FISA court? That's exactly what we were talking about. There's a federal law adopted in 1968. It's called Title III of the Omnibus Crime Control Act that says that generally whenever police, federal, state, or local, want to engage in wiretapping, they've got to go to a judge and they've got to get a warrant and they've got to follow certain procedures. In 1978, Congress passed the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act. FISA. FISA. Mm -hmm. And they created a special court, the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court. The Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court has federal judges picked by the Chief Justice of the United States who sit on it. And when the government has a primary purpose of foreign intelligence gathering, they can go to the FISA court rather than to the usual federal judge. It's more private. It's more oh, confidential. It's very secret. Yeah, That's it's, right. secret, it's totally it's secret. Private, the so FISA court doesn't sit in a courthouse in downtown right, Los right. Angeles or Santa Ana. Right. It meets in secret soundproof rooms in the right. Justice Department in Washington, right, D.C. Right. The FISA court gives the government almost everything it wants. It's granted over 99% of the requests for FISA warrants since 1978 and certainly right. since 2001. The FISA statute says that all wiretapping, electronic eavesdropping in the United States has to follow either procedures of Title III or the FISA procedures. The Bush administration followed neither of these, right. saying it could engage in electronic eavesdropping without following either Title III or the FISA court. Right, right. So a lot of this was done because of the war on terror, because of 9-11. You know, we have this uh, security in the name of security. People have good intentions sometimes to protect us. Um, none of us want a 9-11. So let's talk a little bit about how the war on terrorism um, and the Patriot, the Patriot Act created a loss of our freedom and privacy, because that's another area in this administration. How does that threaten us? The government has the enormous, the awesome responsibility of protecting us from terrorist acts and ensuring national security. Right. Nothing is more important than that. 
And it's so important that the people who are listening to us know, I'm not an absolutist when it comes to the Constitution. Right. I right. believe that, it's just as Robert Jackson said, the Constitution is not a suicide pact. <laughs> right. But I also believe that we should only have our liberties and freedom taken away if it's really necessary for national security. The Bush administration has claimed the authority to detain individuals without meeting the Constitution's requirements. I don't think that's necessary for national security, and I think it's terribly dangerous to allow the government to detain people with no judicial protection. The Patriot Act was adopted very quickly after September 11th. And that's understandable. Knee-jerk reaction, uh, of course. And there are many provisions in the Patriot Act that are good, necessary, even overdue. But there's some that are very scary. Let me give you one example. Section 215 of the Patriot Mm -hmm. Act allows the special agent in charge of an FBI office to issue a letter, subpoena in essence, though it's not a court subpoena, it's called a, a national security letter, information from a person's banks, schools, libraries, and then when the institution turns over the information, they can't tell the person it's been revealed. Yeah, they so, can't tell them before or after. Right, the special agent in charge here in Southern California could send a national security letter to my bank and say, turn over Erwin Chemerinsky's bank records. Right. And the bank could not tell me they were disclosed. Remember what I said a moment ago, the two branches of government should be involved. Here it's just one, the special right. agent in charge. The Inspector General of the United States Department of Justice released a report about a year and a half ago about how Section 215 had been used, how national security laws had been used, and talked about the tremendous abuses. How Special many thousands agents, of those letters uh, were out there? I mean, and they I documented that yeah. exactly, the numbers. And they talked about all the instances where special agents in charge signed whatever an underling put before him or her, how things were requested when there's absolutely no basis for it, and talked about the French abuse. Remember, this isn't a liberal academic. This is the inspector general right. of the United States Department of Justice while Alberto Gonzalez was the attorney general. Right, right, right. Just as Brandeis said, let's go back to him for a minute, that the greatest threat to liberty will come from people who claim to be acting for a beneficial purpose, which reminds me of Ashcroft and it reminds me of Gonzalez, right? All the things that, that, that have happened. The insidious threat to liberty and privacy will come from well-meaning people of zeal. This with little is, understanding. Yeah, with little understanding of what the Constitution it's is all about. about. Now, this seems to be what you've been right. saying all along. You right. teach, you write about the Constitution is so important. So what do you believe must happen and, now? And Justice Brandeis in that same quote said, you know, people born to freedom know to resist the tyranny of despots. He said, the, as you pointed out, the insidious threat to liberty will come from well-meaning people of zeal with little understanding of what the Constitution is about. When I've given speeches on civil liberties and the war on terrorism, most recently, just um, on a Sunday night in July here in, in Santa Ana, um, I ended my speech by quoting that language from Justice Brandeis, and um, I think he's absolutely right. I believe the Bush administration has acted out of the best motives. Right. I believe they have truly wanted to keep us safe from terror. On the other hand, I think they've crossed lines that no administration should cross. I think that they've authorized torture that's just unconscionable, that wasn't necessary to make us safer. I think they've authorized the tension of individuals without due process that was unnecessary. And I'm hopeful that the next president, whether John McCain or Barack Obama, will set another policy, one that makes us just as safe, but that's more respectful of the Constitution. Right. So how, how will your new law school 
help to educate society and our Orange County community as to what that Constitution is really about so that we can join together to protect that privacy and that liberty. I believe that we have the obligation as law professors to educate not just the next generation of law students, but the public as well. We have the wonderful benefit of great knowledge about the legal system. We've got to communicate that to people. I'm always stunned by how little people know about the Constitution and about the legal system. There have been surveys done where they put to people, the First Amendment would change the wording and say, would you vote for it today? And a majority would say no. Um, I was recently at a breakfast meeting where they asked people about various amendments, and no one in the audience knew what the 13th Amendment was that prohibited slavery. No one knew that it was the 19th Amendment that gave women the right to vote. So I think we have the obligation to educate the general public. There's many ways to do this. I hope our faculty will regularly write op-eds in newspapers where they communicate to a wider audience. Um, I hope some of our faculty decide they want to be media commentators. I was a media commentator during the O.J. Simpson case. Every day for a year and a half, I was on TV and radio. I've never educated a larger classroom right. than I did during that time. I regularly like talking to radio programs, TV programs, newspaper reporters as part of educating the public. I hope we will run many programs in the law school that the community will come to to hear terrific speakers about various areas of law. Well, we'd love to have you do that. We'd love to have you invite the entire community to, to learn about these things because what I've experienced, at least with people around me, is that they're so busy with their everyday lives that when they read something in a headline about NSA letters or, or NSA wiretapping or, or whatever it is, warrantless searches, they just can't grasp it. It's just too much for them. So if your law school can provide those kinds of open lectures, not just for law students, but for everyone, and see what it means to them, I think that's a great gift to the community. I want our law school to be very involved with the community. I want us to serve the community. I want us to have clinics where we meet the legal needs of the community. I want us to help educate the community. But I also want the community to be part of the law school. I want the community to help guide us as to what they need, how we can provide for them. And that includes, of course, educational programs of the sort that we're discussing. Yeah, even the extension program can have legal classes or something that's exciting for them to learn about these various issues about liberty and privacy. And I hope that you're going to let some of your professors come on our show. They're always welcome if you invite them. Oh, well, we I, will. It, I think we'll have to start with Dan Burke if you'll tell him he has to be on because he's, he's with the technology and privacy, and that's a good place to start. I won't tell the faculty <laughs> they have to do anything. I want to succeed as dean, and the best way to fail as dean start ordering the faculty around. <laughs> On the other hand, I hope the faculty is certainly aware that I regularly do media-related things because I think it's so important to educate a larger audience. I think especially as a new law school, it's important for us to be out there and spreading the word of who we are and what we're about. And so I'm hopeful that our faculty will do this. I'll encourage Dan Burke to do so as well. All right. Let me ask you one other thing. For those people who are listening, who are on the campus, who are thinking about law school, um, what do you want to tell them? Apply. (laughs) <laughs> Come. I think we have the opportunity to create a very special law school. And the first group of students who will start in 2009 are going to be active participants in shaping that institution. As I've recruited faculty, as I've recruited administrators, I said, Come, let's be part of creating a special institution. Well, I'd say the same thing to students. The other thing, of course, we've got to tell students is how to do it. 
they can go to our website. And since you already mentioned it, I don't feel that I'm oh, just doing it a promotion. It's www.law.uci.edu. www.law.uci.edu. Um, we'll have application materials up in the very near future. If they have any questions about the admissions process, they should call Dean Victoria Ortiz, who's our director of admissions. You want to um, give that phone number? Sure. The dean's office is 949-824-7722, and they should just be connected with Dean Ortiz. Um, Vicki Ortiz came to UCI just starting July 1st, after 10 years at the University of California at Berkeley, Bolt Hall School of Law. Oh, you stole her away. <laughs> you know, everybody comes up to me. I've been doing a lot of talks in the community. <laughs> and when I meet law students who are at Berkeley now or recently been there, they always come and say just that. You stole Dean Ortiz. <laughs> or there's also a wonderful professor, Rachel Moran, who's come from Berkeley. So you stole Professor Moran. <laughs> and, of course, the answer is we didn't steal anybody. <laughs> they decided to come to be part of this yes. wonderful endeavor. Well, I think it's very exciting to birth a law school and, yes. you know, create a whole new idea and vision, and, and that's very exciting. So what do you it want is. to tell the lawyers, like me, who, who live in the community, who are very supportive of the law school? What do you want to tell all of us? There's a lot of us out there. I need your support. I will tell you in all honesty, this law school will succeed, reach the visions of those who worked so long to get it here, only if we have the support of the community. Frankly, we need the financial support of the community. Tuition, particularly at a public university, covers an only small fraction of what the law school budget needs to be. Right. If we're going to succeed, we need people in the community to donate to our school. Right. Small amounts, right. large amounts, <laughs> any, any amounts. Amount. <laughs> um, also, we're going to need lawyers in the community to come be mentors to our students, to be our adjunct faculty who come in and teach a course, to judge our moot courts and our mock trials, and we'll need the help with that. I want their ideas. If there are people who are listening to us who have ideas about law school should do, send me an email. Um, my email is echemerinsky, E-C-H-E-M-E-R-I-N-S-K-Y, at law.uci.edu. I read every email I get, and I'd love your ideas of what a law school should be. So in this way, we really need to be a partnership with the community. Well, we thank you so much for all your time. You're wonderful. We oh, will. You, you can be sure that we're going to be watching and helping and supporting you, and especially KUCI, which is the radio show right here on campus. We would love to be able to interview many of your faculty and have you come back and tell us all the exciting things that are happening and, and keep us apprised on what you're doing in privacy. We hope that maybe you'll get to go back to the Supreme Court again, as you have so many times, to argue for privacy and liberty. So I hope thank so, you. too. Well, thank you for having me. I'll come back anytime, and I'll certainly encourage the faculty to be available to you whenever you want them. Wonderful. Thank you. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. I'm Mari Frank. Please join us every Wednesday from 5 to 6 p.m. right here. And please also visit our website at KUCI.org slash privacypiracy where you can see our upcoming guests. You can listen to the archived interviews, download podcasts, and write us emails about what you want to learn about. Thank you, Dean. You're wonderful. And thank you, Lloyd. You're a great engineer. Good night. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.
Mari Frank, host of Privacy Piracy, which airs right here on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. I'm also so very privileged to be able to present the weekly segment of Orange County Sheriff News and Safety Tips. And tonight we are so thrilled to have Sergeant David Noose joining us, and he supervises the Orange County Sheriff Department's Internal Affairs Unit, and he's been with the Sheriff's Department for 18 years. Thank you so much, David, for joining us. You're welcome, Mari. It's my pleasure to be here. Well, David, so what does the Orange County Sheriff's Department's Internal Affairs Unit do? Well, Mari, the state of California and the penal code requires that law enforcement agencies have a mechanism in place to receive complaints, and the Sheriff's Department, obviously, we comply with that. And we investigate allegations of employee misconduct. Um, we do not investigate allegations of criminal wrongdoing. It's just violations, typically, of our rules and regulations and our policies and procedures. Rules and regulations being uh, general guidelines about behavior. You will be polite and courteous. You will be honest. You will show up to work on time. Mm-hmm. Policies and procedures being more specifically how do you handle specific circumstances, like on patrol, uh, how do you handle a burglar alarm call, or in the jail, how do you handle the uncuffing procedure of a new arrestee. So we investigate allegations of employee misconduct. We, and additionally, yeah. we investigate approximately 300 complaints a year. Wow. About 100 of those come from the citizens themselves. The other 200, roughly, and this is an approximation, come from the employees themselves, typically starting with the first-line supervision. They'll document a uh, possible problem, send it up through their chain of command, and ultimately it will come over here to Internal Affairs and we'll investigate. Now, if a citizen has a complaint about a sheriff's employee, what should he do? Well, the easiest way is to call Internal Affairs directly. My phone number here is uh, 714-647-1874. My investigator picks up the phone, and the citizen can discuss the situation with the investigator. And a lot of times, Mari, the citizen doesn't necessarily want to take the complaint straight to a personnel investigation, a formal Internal Affairs investigation. A lot of times, they're just a little bit confused about why a deputy conducted themselves in a particular matter. A lot of times, they're not privy to police training, and we're very concerned for officer safety. And a lot of times, that leads uh, deputies in the field to do some things that are a little bit of a head-scratcher sometimes. So sometimes one of my internal affairs investigators can explain to them why a deputy may have done what he or she did. And then we also refer them to that employee's supervisor. And if they want to handle it just with the supervisor talking to the deputy, maybe offering some counsel or investigating it in that way. And then finally, the most common way is that we will then send them out a official personnel complaint form. They'll fill it out. It'll come back to Internal Affairs, and we will commence with an investigation. But there are other ways you can comment on an employee's performance. If you go to our website, uh, the department website, it's ocsd.org. On the front page there down at the bottom, there's a tab that says Contact Info, and that gives the citizens the phone numbers and email addresses for every division within our department. So if you want to be a little bit less formal and just shoot an email or a quick phone call, that's another way to make a complaint about our employees. Well, what we're going to do is have you back next week to tell us some more great information. Thank you so much, David, for joining us. You're welcome.